Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. I hope that you are in the mood or will quickly get into it to taste and see some genealogical goodness. I don't know if you woke up thinking about that, but you, you saw us coming in Genesis, and we were making our way towards chapter 5. So uh, brothers and sisters, friends, uh, family, uh, according to this text, we're all family. <laughs> Let's study this and, and devour it and be encouraged by the word of God. So if you grab the Bible in front of you, this will be page 4 in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at the whole chapter. We have 32 verses here, uh, but the verses are, are short, and uh, these verses are d- devoted to a genealogy. And so let's read the Word of God together. This is Genesis chapter 5. The Word of God reads, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan excuse me, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. When Canaan, had, uh, Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel, 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. 
Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a, a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, without you, we would not be. Without your word, O oh Lord, how little we would know. But you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us, and you have been pleased to reveal us to us. You have revealed the history of your gracious dealings with our first parents and their descendants. We ask, Lord, that we would be astounded at what you have given to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that these things would not bore us, but rapture our attention, O God. For there's nothing like it, O Lord. There's no God of any other religion who has ever tried to produce what you have given to us through your servant Moses in the book of Genesis and in this passage. And you have it there for our good. Lord, we ask that you would help us to taste and see your goodness and this genealogical goodness before us this morning, that we may learn its lessons by the power of your spirit, that we might walk with you and love our neighbors more. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. When I came to Biola as an undergrad student, I was not very oriented with the campus. And so you know what schools like Biola have for new students is they have a new student orientation. And I was a new student, and I was in need of some basic orientation. I was not familiar with the campus, not familiar with the history of the school. I didn't know about the 40-foot-tall Jesus mural <laughs> that they had. If you were to drop me in the middle of campus, set me there right by the bell towers, and tell me to head to the SMU building, I wouldn't know what the SMU building was or stood for or what direction it was in. And so I would just have to guess and start walking and hope that I find it, or even better, hope that I find someone who could tell me what those letters mean and where that building is. I'm gonna need to ask somebody, and I'm gonna need someone to tell me. You know the feeling of not being oriented, or maybe it's not for you, maybe you haven't been at an orientation day. Maybe for you, you have played some played uh, whack the pinata <laughs> at somebody's birthday and you've had a blindfold put over your face and you've spun around in circles and circles and circles and then when you were done you had no clue which way to go you had no clue where to swing where to try and hit somebody and everybody else who's looking at you then begins to try to redirect you right you're going to need someone. If you're going to even get close to hitting the pinata, you're going to need someone to say, hey, hold on, pause, stop. It's that way. You're going to need to be oriented. The same truth 
applies to us not only when we enter a new environment or when we, when we become disoriented or when we can't tell which way to go, which way is up, which way is down, which way is left, which way is right, when we don't know the directions around us. We need someone to tell us. We're in basic need of orientation. And that's the same thing that's true when we're born into this world. Who will help us? How, how, none of us comes out of the womb knowing who we are or where we are from or what's our past and what's our purpose and what's our future and what are we to make of this life? And so we're left disoriented. We're in need of some basic help in figuring out which way to go. We're going to need to ask somebody. We're going to need somebody to tell us. The book of Genesis as a whole, but especially in this genealogy, we encounter some basic facts about our world. And if we hear them and believe them, I believe they have the power to help us orient our lives so that we walk with God and live with our neighbors in unity, humility, and hope. And so to restate the main idea again of this sermon, of this text, is that we, we see five life-orienting facts about our world so that we will walk with God and live with our neighbors in unity, humility, and hope. And uh, if you open your notes, you can see these different points there in the notes for you. The five life-orienting facts, I'm going to give them up front because I'm feeling generous, but you go ahead and fill them in and track along. Uh, they are first that we share the same family pedigree. Second, that we share the same family past. Third, that we share the same family purpose. Fourth, that we share the same family problem. And fifth, that we share the same family promise. So let's begin. If you want to be oriented, then welcome to orientation. The first life-orienting fact about our world that we encounter here in this genealogy is that we share the same family pedigree. As we look at the list of names covered in this chapter, we see that it spans from Adam to Noah. And each of the names that follows in this list is a, a descendant of the one who came before it. And so we can just look at this list together again. We have Adam, then Seth, then Enosh, then Canaan, then Mahalalel, then Jared, then Enoch, then Methuselah, then Lamech, then Noah. And then it mentions Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I have an, I, I, if I were to take a wild guess, I bet most of you have heard of Adam. Nice work. Uh, most of you probably heard of Seth. Uh, you're like, yeah, that's, that's Adam's son. Uh, good. Most of you probably even know a thing or two you've heard about Enoch. You're like, who's this guy, this mysterious guy? Disappeared, right? Uh, yeah, so you've probably heard about Enoch. Maybe even Methuselah, because you've had that random Bible trivia fact, right? Where someone asked you who's the oldest person in the Bible, and you said... Methuselah, yeah, that's right, because he lived in 969 years old. But the others you probably don't know much about because, well, we don't know much about them either. And the Bible doesn't say that much about them, about Enosh or Canaan or Mahalalel or, or Jared or, or Lamech. We don't know too much about them. But as you go through that list, another person that would definitely stand, stand out to you uh, is the very uh, last one mentioned, Noah. How many of you know Noah. Yes, I know Noah. Some of you named your kids Noah, right? Uh, and no doubt you know Noah because the next three chapters in Genesis are fully devoted to Noah. Uh, we, some of the most famous Bible stories have to do with Noah uh, and his family. And we, so we see 
And we'll read about Noah and he's famous in the flood and the ark and the animals and the repopulating of the earth and the judgment of God. You've all heard these things before. Noah and his family go on to the ark. There is eight of them on the ark and they drown and uh, they don't, excuse me, uh, they don't drown. You guys know the story well. <laughs> they don't drown, but everyone else who's not in the ark with them unfortunately perishes and drowns in the flood. Eventually they, they get off the ark and that's exactly where according to the scriptures, you and I come from. We share the same family pedigree. All of us are from one family, Noah's family. And lest we be in the dark about who Noah is, we're actually supplied the link and, and the connections between Adam all the way to Noah. So we not only know Noah, but we know about his grandfather and his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather uh, all the way up to Adam. And so this is our shared family pedigree. And it's important as, uh, well, let me just say that we could, we could stop there in, in this discussion, and what we've said so far would not be too controversial for Bible-believing Christians. Uh, but there is a debate that rages concerning this chapter and concerning the genealogies, and that debate is whether or not these genealogies have gaps in them. And so have you ever wondered why are there some Christians who believe the earth is old, and why are there other Christians who believe the earth is young? It has a lot to do with this chapter. It has a lot to do with this genealogy. Uh, in short, if there are gaps in this genealogy, then we can't know possibly how much time is between each of these people. Uh, and so it makes it impossible to form a chronology uh, 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 in order to add up the numbers and, and get to where we are and have an understanding of how old the how old the earth is or how much time it's been since the flood or how much time would it be to go back to Adam. Others would argue that it's possible that there are gaps here. And if it's possible that there's gaps here, then we don't know. Uh, we can't know for, for certain. Uh, those who believe in the young earth say, we think the text looks like it's communicating that these are direct descendants, each of these lines. And we have the numbers given when they bear the sun. So it's not too hard. You do like second or third grade level math that we could add up these numbers and get an idea for a basis of a chronology. Uh, and if you were to then take those numbers and the other numbers that the Bible give us, then we, we have sufficient amount of information to form a chronology. So this is a controversial issue. Do we have the information necessary to form a chronology or do we not? Is that over-reading or is that under-reading the text? And so one example would be William Henry Green, who popularized the idea that there's gaps in the genealogies. He was an Old Testament prof professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. He wrote an incredibly important paper in, in 1890 that most conservative evangelicals uh, who hold to gaps or hold to an old earth uh, have followed in their approach to the Genesis genealogies. Uh, and uh, Terry Mortensen explains uh, William Henry Green's uh, take, he says that the genealogies, uh, this is William Henry Green's explanation, the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 were not intended to be used and cannot properly be used for the construction of a chronology. 
And he concludes that the scriptures furnish no data for a chronological computation prior to the life of Adam and that the Mosaic record does not fix and were not intended to fix the precise date of either the flood or the creation of the world. And, uh, and so Green, um, uh, Mortensen explains, contended that the Bible is silent about the age of man and also about the age of the earth and universe. So scientists are free to determine these ages according to the scientific evidence and Christians need not reject or fear any date so determined. So this is giving you an understanding of, of, at the very least, maybe you don't, you guys might not all agree with each other, you might not all agree with me, but at least you have a better understanding of why is it that Christians disagree on these things. A lot of it has to do with this genealogy in chapter 5 of Genesis and in chapter 11 as well. And while space does not allow me, time does not allow me to do a full treatment of these arguments, uh, I want to mention a few. Those who argue that there may be uh, names that are not mentioned or that there might be gaps in this genealogy uh, do so because they say that other genealogies in the scriptures seem to have some gaps. And one of the examples of that is Matthew's genealogy, uh, where we see that there's three names that get skipped over. Uh, but the reason that we know that those three names are skipped over is because another genealogy says it. Uh, and, and so that's something important to understand. Another thing that's important to understand is that the genealogies don't come in all one form. Uh, and the information that we have in Genesis 5 and 11 is unique. There's no other genealogies in the scriptures outside of Genesis 5 and 11 that have the same form and content that the genealogies in 5 and 11 contain. None of the other genealogies are containing the, inf- the begetting ages, meaning the, the, how old the father was, when he had the son, uh, nor the amount of years after his life, nor a total number. Genesis 5 and 11 are, are unique in that way. And actually in Genesis 11, it won't even mention the total number anymore, uh, but just the begetting age and then the amount of years remaining. Uh, and so it's important to realize that not all the genealogies are the same. And even if you could prove gaps in one, that doesn't necessarily prove gaps in another. Another thing that is, uh, that is, that is brought up, um, and this is argued by, by Henry and, and others who follow, uh, follow Henry's paper, uh, Henry Green's paper. I'm calling him by his middle name, <laughs> William Henry Green. Uh, and that's the idea that um, the word for begot, or the word for fathering that you, you have, um, that he, fa- you know, Adam fathered Seth and that Seth fathered Enosh. Uh, one of the arguments is made is that that doesn't always indicate a direct descendant. So if we could actually look at a few texts. Deuteronomy 4.25 speaks of when you father children and children's children. We have the same word being used there. And it's true that it refers in that text to both a direct immediate descendant and a more remote one, the grandson as well. Uh, you can see the same in 2 Kings 20 verse 18. And so it's absolutely true. That's a, that's a true point. No one is disputing that, for, that the word he fathered, that verb there, vayoled, uh, as, as occurs, is always indicating an immediate physical descendant. It's not. But we have to also recognize that most of the time and nearly almost all the time, it is. Uh, Paul Tanner, in his paper on genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, notes that the hephil verb uh, is used three out of 176 times 
to refer to a non-physical, non-direct descendant. In other words, a grandson or whatever. That means that the other, you know, 173 times, it is referring to a direct descendant. So you would think that we need to have some really, really, really good evidence to not take it that way. Uh, And then I think that on top of that, when we look at these uh, genealogies, we actually have a lot of indication that uh, outside of just the way that that verb is used in the scriptures, uh, we have lots of indications that there are direct father-son relationships in mind for these connections. And so let's just examine a few of these together. I'll ask you, is Adam the direct father of Seth? Well, how do you know that? You said it because it says it? <laughs> uh, good job. Yeah. And in Genesis 4.25 says, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore him a son and named him Seth. So Seth can't be a grandson in that situation, okay? Uh, and he also named, uh, uh, we, have the, we have Seth being named there as well um, by, uh, uh, by Adam. The mention of the wife bearing a son And the naming mentioned here are helpful criteria for knowing that Seth is a direct descendant of Adam. Okay, let's move on in the list. We have Adam to Seth. Those are direct. Then we go from Seth to Enosh. Do we have any details in the text that would indicate that Enosh is the direct descendant of Seth? Yes. Genesis 4.26 says that Seth names his son Enosh. Okay, Uh, so that is another link. So we have the f- from Adam to Seth and from Seth to Enosh. And then let's jump to the last uh, couple links in the genealogy. And I'll ask you, is Lamech the direct father of Noah? Yes. Why? Because it says in verse 28 and 29 that, that Lamech, <laughs> uh, Lamech names Noah uh, and then announces the prophetic significance of that name. Uh, Then we go on to, how about between Noah and Shem? Is Noah the direct father of Shem? What would you say? What do we see in the text that would prove that? Well, it mentions three brothers together that, that Noah fathered. So he fathered, right, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we know that they're direct sons, uh, not only because he bore them, to, bore them each and they're, they're mentioned together, but also the rest of the scriptures as we keep reading, um, they're all on the ark with Noah. Uh, and, and we know that they are his, his direct sons and they bring their wives on there and, and whatnot. And so this shows us that there's already in the first three, uh, we have confirmed direct father to son relationships at the beginning of the genealogy. And then the the ones at the end are also used uh, as direct sons. And so that then allows us to kind of narrow this down. And moreover, like if you're thinking the first three are direct sons, it would seem kind of weird to just jump to another meaning that's being intended there. Uh, but we'll also see, if we look at Jude, one, Jude f- verse 14, Jude makes mention, and this is helpful, uh, because we don't have any details for, in the text given to us with regard to e- the connections between Enosh to Canaan, or Canaan to Mahalalel, or Mahalalel to Jared, or Jared to Enoch. The text doesn't say more details there for us. But in Jude 1, 14, says that Jude remarks that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied. And then he goes and, and contains, uh, explains the prophecy that, that, that Enoch uh, makes. And so counting inclusively, counting Adam as number one, and when you get to Enoch, Enoch is the seventh from Adam. 
And so I think that this links the first three that we already know as direct father-son relationships all the way with the next four. So we can go from Adam to Seth to Enosh to Canaan to Mahalalel to Jared to Enoch in the same way. And so uh, if those first seven are, you know, direct father-son descent uh, connections, then it would seem like you'd really want some, you know, uh, really powerful evidence to, to, to not hold that the rest in this list are. Uh, but we also see then um, that there, you know, you could say that it's possible that you could fit some gaps between maybe, uh, maybe Methuselah and Lamech or maybe between Enoch and Methuselah. And the problem is if you try to fit a gap between Methuselah and Lamech, that won't work. Because we're told Methuselah's age when he had Lamech, which is 187. Then we're told Lamech's age when he had Noah, which is 182. And then we're told that Noah is 600 when the flood comes. And so the full amount of time from the birth of uh, Methuselah uh, to the flood is 969 years, which is also Methuselah's age. So Methuselah dies in the year of the flood. And so you literally have zero years to try to fit a gap in between Methuselah uh, and Lamech and going to the flood. So that leaves one possible spot. The only possible spot would be between Enoch and, and, and Methuselah. And I wish, maybe someday soon, I'll figure out that one too. Uh, but I, I, do you want to stuff generations between Enoch and Methuselah when all the other ones, it doesn't work? I just, I, I see that as an exceedingly weak argument. And so all this uh, goes to show that uh, we have these names that are direct father-to-son links. And, and also, just as we had Noah giving birth to fathering Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we see, okay, this father had, had these sons, and so we know that that's likely a direct link. It's, we have this information, this statement made after every single one of the patriarchs in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, and it repeated... After he had lived, you know, he lived this many years after he had that son and he had other sons and daughters. And he had other sons and daughters and he had other sons and daughters. And so all of, the, uh, uh, all of this would then seem to indicate for us, no one's really arguing that the sons and daughters they had are not first generation sons and daughters. So why would the one that's named be like a remote descendant and then the ones that are not named be an immediate descendant? That doesn't seem to make any sense. So all, all this goes to show then that, that God, he's really the God of our fathers. <laughs> you, like this is, this is amazing. I love it. We share the same family pedigree. There's no names missing. We have a full, clear, succinct family tree, family pedigree. You all go back to Noah. Uh, and then from Noah, you all go back to Adam. And these, the, these links are also uh, stated straightforward for us in First Chronicles 1. No begetting ages, no years. This is just bare minimum. First Chronicles genealogy. This is how it goes. This is all it says. Adam, Seth. Enosh, Canaan, Mah Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. When we look at the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, Jesus' genealogy, which by the way, this reminds us not just your family pedigree, it's the Messiah's family pedigree. Luke 3.36 says the, the, that we have, we have the, the, the son of, uh, uh, we, 
We have Shem, who is said to be the son of Noah, who is the son of Lamech, who is the son of Methuselah, who is the son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. No gaps. This is your family pedigree, and it's mine as well. And so, really, this is amazing because it changes the way we view each other. Like, we're really family. I wasn't just playing about that in the, in the beginning. It's so that changes the way you treat each other. You can't look down on another person. You can't consider them as less. You can't be like, oh, we've been here longer. Or, oh, we're a higher form or, or we're, more, we're more advanced than, than you are. Racism has no basis when you understand that everybody in the world is one family. That's your brother you're hating. That's your sister you're hating. That's them you're treating as less. You think you're special because you've been here longer and those people migrated? Well, those people who migrated are also related to you. And so while you think that they're fresh off the boat, guess what? Your whole family's fresh off the boat. <laughs> Noah's boat. Is that not life-orienting? Isn't that not unifying? Is that not humbling? Oh, and a genealogy, oh, it's genealogy, goodness, we love it. All right, let's keep going. This leads to the second life-orienting fact about our world, and that's that we share the same family history or the same family past. This is closely related to the point above, but if you understand where we came from, uh, where we are, uh, then you can, we can also get a sense, according to this text, of when we got here. And so the reason that I, I want to make mention of this here is, is not only is there not genealogical gaps, I think, but I don't think that there's any space for any chronological gaps either. And one of the arguments uh, that William Green makes in, is, is that uh, he, he believes that when father of is mentioned, it can, it can indicate a remote descendant. And so there can be unknown gaps of time between each of the names in the list. And so, uh, in, in, for example, instead of us reading it as Enosh lived 90 years and begat Canaan, uh, then the idea would, would be that Enosh, according to Green, lived 90 years and one was born from whom Canaan sprang. So the, the, the one who is fathered uh, is not the direct descendant, but one who will lead to that direct descendant. And I think there's some problems with this. One of them is, is the fact that you have a direct object marker in the Hebrew that's indicating the direct object for us of the one who is being fathered. Uh, and so that indicates for us that it's Canaan, not a, you know, a person before Canaan, but Canaan himself is the one who was fathered uh, in that uh, uh, at the 105th year of Seth's life. But then there's also another point that's made uh, by, um, by an author, and he, 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 I'll just read his, his quote here. He says that the begat indicates the birth of the person named after it, and the day that birth is given. And so listen to this. He says, it matters not how many unnamed generations intervene. The chronology is fixed and unchanged. No such anomaly is known in scripture or in reason as a date, excuse me, as a dating given to an unnamed ancestor's birth. The chronology here added to the genealogy forbids any such fast and loose play on upon omissions. And so this 
observation then shuts the door to gaps in the genealogy. No men or, uh, are missing and no time is missing. Because even if Canaan is not the direct descendant and say he was the grandson, the age of the father when the grandson was born is still given. So you still know the amount of time between the father and the grandson if you think he's the grandson. But the text, I think, does not allow at all that he is the grandson. Uh, and so this all helps for us to realize that we not only have an understanding of where we are from, but we have an understanding of when we got here. We share the same family past. We share the same family history. And, uh, and it, this, the length of this history is recorded for us. If there are no genealogical gaps, then by adding the years of the genealogy together, we can arrive at the numbers of, of uh, we can arrive at a number of years that the earth is old. Genesis will give us chronological information that brings us to the time Jacob went down to Egypt. Exodus 12.40 says that the time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. 1 Kings 6.1 tells us that from the day that the people left Egypt to the day that Solomon built the temple was 480 years. Following the times assigned in the books of Chronicles, uh, in Kings, and other passages, we can arrive at a point where we see the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And the rest is, is history. There are, it needs to be said, some differences in the chronology that are worth mentioning here. Uh, and this isn't a, a, a gap issue or not, slightly unrelated to whether there's gaps or not, uh, but there are differences in the numbers given in Genesis chapter 5, whether you're looking at the Masoretic text or if you're looking at the Greek Septuagint. Uh, if you were to open your Bibles, uh, in my ESV, there's a little tiny note in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. I forgot to check the pew Bible, so someone telling me if it has this note. But does verse 8, after it says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, have a little note at the bottom where it says, Hebrew, Samaritan, Septuagint, Syriac, Vulgate, add, let us go out to the field. Do you guys see that? You guys can see that? So uh, essentially what's going on there, when it talks about the Hebrew, that's referring to what's known as the Masoretic text. Uh, when it says the Samaritan, it's, it's referring to something called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And the Septuagint is, is, the Greek, is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done around 280 B.C., uh, and then you have Syriac and Vulgate, which are some of the earliest languages that the Bible was translated into. And so there's times when the Masoretic text doesn't have something or might differ from the Septuagint or others. And so what scholars do is they engage in this, this, uh, this, this work of textual criticism. They try to study uh, internally and internal evidence and external evidence and, and seek to arrive at what was the likely original reading in, in this text or in that text. Uh, and so one of the things that you have to wrestle with in Genesis 5 is that the ages that are given uh, do differ between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and also the Samaritan Pentateuch. And so I've provided for you on the last page of your notes uh, a little chart. If you grab that um, and you take a look at it, um, I, I want you to be familiar with this because it does affect uh, chronology, um, but it doesn't affect any, the idea of, a, you know, uh, of, of the gaps or not. 
it does change essentially whether you think the earth is, you know, the creation was in about 4004 BC as Bishop James Usher did, uh, and thus yielding a 6,028-year-old earth or about a 6,000-year-old earth. Or if you follow the numbers given in the Septuagint, you arrive at about a 5,500 BC creation day or a total of 7,524 years. That difference between the two is uh, about 1,500 years is mostly accounted for by the differences in the Genesis 5 and the Genesis 11 genealogies. And so if you just look at the chart that, uh, that you have there, um, look on the, the, the side that mentions um, Genesis, Genesis 5, uh, you'll, you'll notice that the Masoretic text has for the begetting ages in comparison to the Septuagint that there's a tendency, and I'm not going to throw out the theories and the conspiracies and everything, but it, it looks like either the Septuagint inflated these numbers or the Masoretic deflated the numbers. We're not claiming that both these numbers was original because Adam was either 230 or 130 when he had his son. So uh, there's different theories on why that is the case, but, but most scholars are content uh, and have come to the conclusion that somebody changed it, which <laughs> scholars are great, aren't they? Uh, yeah, so somebody, somebody's messing with something. What happened here? And so you, when you look and compare these, you, you, you notice that for Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Enoch, all of them are dropped for their begetting ages are lower by 100 years in comparison with the Septuagint. And this, the Masoretic text agrees with the Septuagint on Jared and Methuselah and Lamech, the slight diversion of six years with, with Lamech, but then also with Noah at 500. And so you could total the, the years of difference in Genesis chapter 5 alone as a 600-year difference between those two, uh, the numbers provided in the Man, uh, Masoretic text and the numbers provided in the Septuagint. Uh, and when you look at Genesis 11, you can see a similar thing happen. Notice the Masoretic text and the Septuagint will agree on Shem and Terah, but the rest, um, Aparkshad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Surug, and Nahor, six patriarchs, lose 100 uh, or gain 100, depending on how you're looking at it, and one loses or gains 50. And so the difference there is about 650 uh, and then there's an additional issue where there's a guy named Canaan mentioned in the Septuagint and not in the Masoretic, and he's said to be 130 years old when he, was, when he had his son. And so if you were to look at those, then the difference you would get there is about uh, 800 in, uh, 830 years. Um, so that's where you get close to that 1,500 number difference. Uh, this is helpful for you because when you are trying to think through chronology, when you are reading and understanding, like, where are people coming from with that number? Where are people coming from this number? Now you know. And now you can join the conversation, and now you can figure it out and let me know, right? Uh, so the, I'll just make, make mention here that I don't, I don't think that anyone, uh, I haven't read anyone who finds the Samaritan Pentateuch's numbers convincing. Uh, there's some, some weird flip-flopping going on, almost like the Samaritan Pentateuch couldn't decide whether it wanted to go with the Masoretic or the Septuagint. Uh, so it, it diverges from both. But interestingly, the Samaritan Pentateuch, if you compare that with the Masoretic text in Genesis 5, it has the same low begetting ages. But then in Genesis 11, it instead agrees with the Septuagint's higher begetting ages. Fascinating. I don't know. You figure it out. God help us. If you want to read more on chronology, 
uh, from the perspective that takes the Septuagint numbers as original, you can see work done by Henry Smith. Uh, he has a, a paper, uh, Masoretic Text Septuagint or Samaritan Pentateuch Deciphering a Chronological Conundrum, and he has other papers related to that as well. If you want to read uh, more on the chronology that takes the Masoretic Text as original uh, numbers for Genesis 5 and 11, see work being done by Ken Griffith and Daryl White. Uh, their chronological framework of an ancient history part four would be especially helpful in that way. But just as I look at these, um, I, I just think it's interesting that the, the Masoretic text agrees with Lamech and Methuselah um, and Noah, and these are really high begetting ages. So that to me at least indicates that it's not crazy the ages that the Septuagint is, is, is saying. Um, and, and so it's at least possible that the Septuagint numbers could, 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 could happen. Uh, and, and then um, I think that you, it, it seems weird to me uh, to have the begetting ages be so low as they occur in the Masoretic text. And one of the reasons um, that I, I think that is because one, just like if, and this is an assumption, but I'll just throw it out there. If, if like, a, you know, if you're to equate like a 900 year old person, uh, my, my guess, my, my assumption would be that they probably will track in age to about us today, you know, to a 90 year old person. And so a 900 year old person would maybe be similar in their aging process as a 90 year old person. If you think this is ridiculous, you can throw it out. But that said, you know, to have somebody who, you know, uh, is living at 90 and then, you know, uh, begetting at nine, that seems kind of early. But that's the sort of numbers that you're getting with the, with the Masoretic text, which makes it really interesting. Um, and then when we get to other ages, uh, you notice in the Masoretic text in Genesis 11 that, that Terah all of a sudden is, leaps up from the 30s. Then as you go through the scriptures, Abraham's begetting at 100, Isaac's begetting at 60. Like we don't see any of these lower begetting ages. I don't know. One other argument that, that may also be in favor uh, of taking the Septuagint numbers uh, as the original ones, is, is a comment uh, in Genesis 25, verse 8. Uh, it says that these are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Uh, so Abraham is said in his day to be a man uh, a, who lived at, you know, died in a good old age and a man full of years at 175. And, and one of the things, I have this charted out, you guys could take a look at it sometime, but one of the things that's interesting is when you lower the begetting ages, you have a tremendous amount of overlap between the patriarchs on the Masoretic text tradition. Uh, so if you look at that, you could, you could look and you could see and you'll find this is crazy. Noah ends up, Noah living 950 years, uh, in, ends up uh, lasting nearly to the time of Abraham. Noah's death is two years before Abraham is born. So that's like the whole Genesis 11 genealogy kicking it, having a Bible study together. Uh, Shem's dying at 600 is 25 years before Abraham's death. And Eber would still be alive at 464 when, when Abraham died. And these numbers are courtesy of Henry Smith's article. Uh, so Henry, asks, Henry Smith asked the question, why is Abraham considered an old age, old man, full of years, dying at 175 when Shem just died at 600? It's interesting. 
He says that, Smith says that only the longer chronology of the Septuagint had lifespans dropped to the point where Abraham's epitaph could be considered accurate and coherent. Look, I don't know the answer to, to these, but I wrestle with them and bring these to you to, uh, to have in your tool belt so that you can, you can study further and think about these things further and uh, look, look into the issue more. Um, now that, let me just say a quick word then uh, about, I, so I mentioned already, the, I think that there's an important need for textual criticism. And you should know that that's the translation uh, philosophy approach for those who uh, have edited and um, translated uh, our Bibles. Most of our, uh, pretty much all of our English Bibles, um, there's an, some, some exceptions that take uh, an approach to the text that requires textual criticism. So there'll be points at time where uh, they're working from the Masoretic text, but they'll say, you know what, right here, either the Masoretic doesn't make sense or something seems missing. And so we're going to look at the other early translations, early versions, Septuagint, whatever, and we're going to then go with uh, one of those readings here. And that'll be reflected in your, your English translation. And so everything we've been talking about is just giving you background for how they're making the decisions they're making and really how you have an English Bible uh, before you. And so I believe that God has preserved his word, but I see textual criticism as an important necessary task in discerning the small amount of places where different readings occur uh, and, and really um, the, the types of things that they differ on are not things that like any sort of major doctrines are, are built on. Right? Whether Adam gave birth at 2.30 or 1.30 uh, does not affect that God is creator, man is sinful, God has provided a savior, that Jesus has come, that's done everything we need for our salvation, uh, all in fulfillment of the promises he made in, in the Hebrew scriptures. Does it affect our chronology? Yeah, it does. Uh, but in the, the big picture, uh, it does not touch on any major uh, important doctrines with these with these differences. Uh, and and now you're familiar with really one of the one of the biggest ones. Uh, so feel free to look more into that. But all that to say is that if you follow the numbers given either the Septuagint or the Masoretic, and there's no gaps, and Adam was made on day six, and you understand that literally then whether the Masoretic or the Septuagint, we are understanding that we have the same family history and that there's no large or, or giant gap that has been there between the foundation or the creation of the world and Adam. Both the Masoretic and the Septuagint, if there are no gaps, they will not allow there to be a giant gap of time between the creation of the world and the creation of man, such as is necessary and taught in a big bang uh, and, and evolutionary view of the world. On that view of the world, you're looking at a 13 billion year old universe. You're looking at a 4.5 billion year old solar system of which then it went through an extremely long process of evolution uh, that took place for about 4 billion years. And then up in the... the uh, after about 3.8 billion years into this project of the earth, some animals start showing up, and then not until about 200,000 years ago do humans show up. That's a gap just from the time when the earth is, 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 uh, is, is forming and coming forth uh, to the time of man of 4,499,800,000 years before the beginning of the earth in, the, uh, in, in regard to the beginning of man. 
If you take the gap between the beginning of the world and the beginning of man, then you have a 13 billion year gap. No gaps in a genealogy, you're gonna solve those issues. And no, no, no view that, that uh, tries to hold to those are gonna be able to also account for some of the statements that Jesus made. Think about this statement, Mark 10, verse six. Jesus says, they're asking about divorce. And Jesus says that, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Did you hear that? From the beginning of creation, not 4.5 million years in or not, you know, 13 billion years in, but from the beginning, there can't be a gap there. Jesus is reading Moses and he's reading Moses to be reading these accounts as if, as if the beginning of creation, the beginning of man were the same week. They're the same time. Also in Luke eleven fifty, Jesus says that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So what's he saying there? Who's the, who's the first prophet mentioned here that was there? His blood was shed from the foundation of the world. Abel. There can't be a giant gap between the foundation of the world and the shedding of Abel's blood. And so it sounds to me like Moses and Jesus are on the same page. And in fact, Jesus said in John 5, 45, do not think that I accuse you to the Father. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you believe me. For he wrote of me. And John 5, 47 says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Brothers and sisters, this is your history. And this is mine. And it's been recorded for us so that we could understand it and so that our lives can be oriented by it. God left us a record. He left us written records. Terry Mortensen says, this is a longer quote, he says that in another way that Jesus revealed his complete trust in the scriptures was by treating as historical fact the accounts in the Old Testament, which most contemporary people think are unbelievable mythology. Those historical accounts include Adam and Eve as the first married couple, Abel as the first prophet who was martyred, Noah and the flood, Moses and the serpent, Moses and the manna, the experience of Lot and his wife, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the miracles of Elijah, and Jonah and the big fish. He says, as Wynnum has compellingly argued, Jesus did not allegorize the accounts, but took them as straightforward history, describing events that actually happened just as the Old Testament describes. Jesus used these records to teach his disciples that his death, resurrection, and second coming would likewise certainly happen in space-time reality. We should say amen to that. This is your history and it's mine. Lutheran reformer Philip Melanchthon said this. Chronology is so important, he includes it in a statement in regards to his doctrine of scripture. He says, God willed that history should be written for us by the fathers and prophets in best order and with the number of years carefully handed down. This is the singular glory of the church that nowhere else in the entire human race has an older series of reigns and times been found. Nor does any other people have the number of years reckoned back so certainly. We share the same family past. Family. Let's move now to the third fact. And that's that we share the same family purpose. When we think of some of the most important things to think about, I can't think of uh, anything more important than knowing, that, knowing what is our purpose. If you don't know your purpose, you are disoriented in a dark and dying and sinful world. What am I here for? 
Like you don't know your purpose. You may want to get out of bed <laughs> in the morning, right? Like what, what's going to motivate me? Why am I here? I need to know. Am I just floating? Like, because if I'm just floating in space in a direction where I don't know, then it doesn't matter if I try to change directions. It doesn't matter if I try to go up or down or left or right. What does it matter? This third life orienting fact is that we share the same family purpose. And this purpose, I think, is shown in verse 1 and 2. It says that uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So God made us to be like him and to have relationship with him. Uh, This is our shared family purpose. We get to represent him. We get to serve him. And we, our first parents, enjoyed being made in the image of God and received his blessing only to then turn and sin and squander it. But the purpose has not changed for them. God did not give up on them. Uh, Look at verse three. When Adam had lived 130 years old, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And you can begin to think for a moment, well, man, Adam and Eve blew it. They were made in the image of God, but now they lost the image entirely. But we see that Adam had lived and he's passing on this image and likeness to Seth. Seth comes and he is the descendant of Adam, born outside of the garden, born after the fall, born after sin has entered the world. And he is said to be in the likeness of his father and after his image. And so I think that these things begin to make it clear for us that there's still our purpose to represent God and to enjoy relationship with him and to walk with him. Look at what it says about Enoch in our chapter, Genesis 5, to 24. I think that this speaks clearly to our purpose, clearly to our purpose for existing. It says that Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. What an amazing thing there. Does it sound like Enoch was a good dude or a bad dude? Does it sound like Enoch was fulfilling God's purpose for his life or not? Yeah, Absolutely. Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How did he, what's that commendation that the the author of Hebrews is talking about? He's talking about the statement that, that Enoch walked with God. That's the, I want you to hear this, please. If you didn't hear anything else and you zoned out because whatever, you, you weren't interested in the genealogical goodness uh, that we've been going through so far, please hear this. Your purpose is to walk with God. And there's nothing more important for you in your life than to be known and to be commended by God as someone who walked with him. This is what you want etched onto your grave. Walked with God. Not millionaire, not billionaire, not, you know, fancy, not popular, not a bunch of followers, not, no, walked with God. Walk with him. Walk with him. This is our purpose. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 says that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Not everyone who, 
No, I won't, I, I won't say that. I'll just, let's go to Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord requ- your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That is our purpose. That's our human family's purpose. And so are you fulfilling that? Are you living for that? Do you let that purpose orient you in this world? Is that what you're seeking to do? And notice also that this is our family purpose. This is the purpose for your neighbor. This is the purpose for your brother. This is the the purpose for your cousin. Everyone on the earth, you should be trying to help them. You should be trying to be your brother's keeper and help them to do what? Walk with God. Don't stray to the right. Don't stray to the left. You keep going forward. You follow God and you help as many people as you can to follow him as well and to walk with God. And I think that this will keep us humble. This will keep us humble. We, we understand that, that, that neither Enoch nor Noah was perfect. Neither of them was perfect, but still they're being commended as having walked with God. And so walking with God doesn't mean that you're perfect, but walking with God, I think, does mean that, that you have faith. Remember that he was committed. The point of the author of Hebrews that he's writing about Enoch is that that he, by faith, was taken up so that he might not see death because he had walked with God. You will not walk with God unless you have faith in God. And you will not have faith in God. You will not, you, you will not walk with God if you don't think he exists. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. If we believe he exists, which I hope that you do, then by faith, you should seek to walk with him. And when you do that, that is the thing that is absolutely above all the thing that most pleases him. Why? Because that's the purpose for which he made us. This is our family purpose. But we have to keep going here to also realize that we not only share the same family uh, pedigree and past and purpose, but also the same family problem. This leads to the the fourth life-orienting fact. And that's that we share family problem. Any of your guys' families have problems? I thought you guys would laugh more. That's okay. Uh, You guys must, you guys got it together. Uh, Your families are perfect. (laughs) Uh, No, this text would say otherwise. Uh, Guess what? Everybody's family's got problems, and our family has a problem, and it's a big problem. It's called a sin problem. We see the effects of sin that in our families, and not only that, we see it in this genealogy, and we can see its impact. Notice it in in a couple ways here. First, you see this repeated phrase at the end of, of each of the formulas. What do we see there? Adam lived, da 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 and he died. Seth, and he died. Enosh, and he died. Canaan, and he died. We got that repeated for each of them in this chapter. What is that reminding us of? It's reminding us that the wages of sin is death. It's reminding us that we have a family problem. We have a sin problem. You know, often you go to the doctor and they ask about your family health history And by family health history, they mean any unhealthy things that have happened to your family, right? Uh, In in such as diseases or other things. Look, next time your doctor asks you, you tell them our family has a problem of dying. That's what our family has a problem of doing. 
Yeah, do you have any health history? Yeah, they're all dead. <laughs> Why is this the case? Why is this the case? God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the Lord promised to Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's good news that we see that the likeness of God was still passed down, the image preserved passed down into Seth. But also we see that there's this sin problem that is passed down to Seth, and not just to Seth, but also to Enosh, to Canaan, and to the rest of us. And that's why we die. This is a sobering reality. It's a great and troubling issue. It's a huge problem. It rips our families apart. It breaks our hearts. It reminds us, though, that there is an end. And it, it mo should move and reorient, orient our lives to doing whatever our purpose is as much and as well as we can in the short time that we have because death is coming for us. I've been listening to one of Shailen, he's a Christian rapper, songs, uh, and he, it's called Elder Statesman. He, the first line of the song, I just, I love it. He says, I, re I recommend reciting Psalm 90 while visiting a graveyard. It reminds me how limited my days are. And yo, I need that. The clock's ticking. It's not fiction. The rock quickens as the plot thickens. What's Psalm 90? Moses wrote Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set your iniquities before you have set our iniquities, excuse me, our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span, hear this, is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. If you're going to be properly oriented in this world, you need to know that you have inherited a family problem. And this problem is not only that you will die, but also that the days of life that you live until you die are also going to be difficult. That was included in the promise that, that God gave to Adam. He said that it would be by the sweat of their brow. And so Moses saying that their span, the years of our life is but toil and trouble. He's pulling on that exact same thing. Not only do we die, not only is our time short, but also it's hard and it's difficult. And notice that this is also picked up by Lamech when he, na he names Noah. Look at this in verse 28 to 29. Lamech says that Noah, called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground the Lord God is cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Where's this painful toil coming from? God said, you shall eat 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. This is our family problem. Not only is li- are we going to die, but life in the time between now and death is difficult. It's hard. It's hard to be faithful. It's hard to provide. It's, it's hard to follow God. It's hard to walk with God. It's hard to overcome temptation. It's hard to say no to sin. It's hard to say no uh, to, to the world. It's hard to endure persecution. It's hard to look like a fool for Christ. It's hard to do all sorts of things. This should humble us and orient us. Jacob, Pharaoh asks Jacob when Jacob comes to Egypt, Pharaoh asks him, how, how old are you? What are the days of your sojourning? And this is what Jacob says to him. I don't know too many have made this their life verse, but the days of my, the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained the days of the years of the life of the, my fathers in the days of their sojourning. This is our family problem. But there's not just a family problem that we've inherited. If, if the story ends there, then, then we all live a difficult death and then you die. Close. <laughs> End of the story. But the story has never been told that way, at least not by Jews and not by Christians. No, we share the same family promise. That promise is first stated in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And one of the things that I, I think is neat is before the dust, uh, you know, you returning to dust statement is made by God to Adam, uh, before that, you know, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, essentially before any of the consequences for sin are communicated by God to Adam, you know what he first communicates? The promise. It communicates the promise. He promises that one of the descendants or offspring of Eve is going to be the one born who will bruise the serpent's head even while he is bruised in the heel by the serpent. And I think an awareness of this promise is, is what Eve was expecting. You can see the sermon on Genesis 4. But also, I think that it's the same promise that Lamech is expecting. Eve and Lamech, for all they know, it could be my son. And for all you would want, if it's hard and difficult and death's coming, you would want the one to conquer death and to reverse the curse to be your son, would you not? So Lamech names his son Noah, verse 29, says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toils of, toil of our hands. Where did he get the idea of the, the relief from painful toil? That can only be brought by the seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And so Lamech, I think, is hoping that his son will be Messiah and bring relief. Uh, but ultimately, we know Noah doesn't do that. And Noah ends up, uh, while he walked with God, he wasn't perfect, and he sinned as well. But God would use Noah to preserve and protect the line, leading to the man who would bring us relief. That man is our Lord Jesus Christ. And though life is difficult and painful, and though life ends with death, the Lord Jesus came, He lived a perfect life. He suffered and died for sinners to save us in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And he promises us that in this world, you you will have tribulation, but take heart what? I have overcome the world. This is the one who never sinned. This is the one who overcame sin. This is the one who destroyed death by raising uh, from the dead and who is the one who uh, will punish 
Satan in the lake of fire for all eternity. A day is coming and we know as Christians that that day has come with Christ's first coming, even as we await for it in his second coming where these things will all be complete. This is our promise. This is our shared family promise. As Christians, we have the blessed hope that there is a way out for us. The Lord will take us to be with him forever. When uh, I love this quote by Paul Tanner. He writes that the fact that God took him, speaking of Enoch, clarifies that the curse of death is not the final answer. Isn't that encouraging? I, when I think about how God took Enoch, I think about, you know, Enoch was raptured for, before being raptured was cool. Jesus makes this promise to us in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to be with myself that where I am, you may be also. Does death have the last word? We think, well, what about the Christians who had died? How is he going to take them? They already died. Time, they missed the window. That was what the Thessalonians were thinking. And Paul says to them that those who are alive will not precede those who have died, but that we will all be caught up together with them in the clouds and so we'll be with them always. Like if you're believing in Jesus Christ and your faith is in him, this Messiah, this promised seed, then you can be sure that death's not the last word for you. He's going to take you and you're going to be with him and all the rest of the family who's believed in him for all eternity. So encourage each other with these words. This gives us hope in a world that is dark, in a world that is difficult, in a world where it seems like I look left and I look right and it's just people dying, 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 funeral, funeral, funeral. Where's the hope? It's in Christ. Follow the promise all the way through the Bible. It's there from the beginning to the end. Do you have any other hope besides that? We've inherited a family problem, but we've also inherited an important family promise that gives us hope. So in conclusion, where would you be without the word of God? How lost, disoriented would you be in a dark and dying world without the light of his word? Where do I come from? Why am I here? How did I get here? When did I get here? What's the purpose of, and what hope, uh, what's the purpose of my life? And what hope do I have for the future? You're going to need to ask someone. You're going to need someone to tell you. And these five facts have now been set before you. God through Moses, all contained in a simple genealogy. We share the same family pedigree. We share the same family past. We share the same family purpose. We share the same family problem. We share the same family promise. Moses' job was to obey the Lord and to write this. The scribe's job is to copy this. <laughs> they haven't done it perfectly. <laughs> My job to you is to preach it to you. Your job is to believe it and to orient your life by it. Father, we thank you. We pray that you'd bless your church that they would live differently, yes, even because of a genealogy, Lord. May it inform their thoughts. May it guide them in the actions to take. 
May they know, Lord, the way to go, and may they walk in that way, Lord. May they walk with you and try to help as many of their family as possible to walk with you as well in unity and humility and hope. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.